Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 195. And today we're talking about food, as we do often here at TV, TV Industries. And in part of this conversation, we talked about the emotional connection and like your own personal historical connection to food. And that comes up a lot. But I was thinking about that a bit because I connected to last week, actually. There's an incredible chef here in Brooklyn who makes Cambodian food under the moniker Krung Cambodia. And last week she did a, a pickup service for chili wings and rice and this really awesome egg that had like salmon belly at the top of it. Oh God, it was so, so good. But it was extra good because it was at the end of a long, hard work week and I was tired I just needed like, I needed some comfort and it came in the form of the food. So when I was recording this episode, I wasn't only thinking back to like really amazing meals that I had from my grandmother on either side or like when my dad used to make uh, pancakes every Saturday. I have an emotional connection to those things, but I was thinking about times when I just felt like exhausted and run down and food was there to like to make me feel good. So I was thinking about uh, a trip that I had taken with my buddy up to Acadia National Park in Maine. And thanks to Jeremy from from Madison, Wisconsin, we were having this conversation and he was saying like, you should do some more of your, your like solo stories and things like that. And there are a lot of things I was thinking that, you know, there are a lot of places in the States that I've gone that I haven't really talked about. Now, there's real, really no story that came out of Acadia because it was pouring rain the whole time. I believe it was this summer because I think it was this same trip where we came back and we spent some time at the beach in Connecticut, actually. But it was, it was raining and it was freezing in Maine. Now, I don't condone, condone this action anymore. We were young, so please have forgiveness for uh, young Tim's friend. But (laughs) at the time, my friend had taken, we'll call it taken, a framed photo from a bar food establishment. And I don't know how, it's really odd, but somehow they figured it out. They figured out it was him and they had said that it was because they matched up every credit card from that day and called the credit card companies. And I don't know, it's a fishy story. But somehow they ended up with his phone number. And on that trip, they called him to let him know, if this is not returned, we're going to get the authorities involved. Again, I don't condone this, but I say it to say it sort of colored the trip and it, and, you know, it made us, put us in pretty poor mood while we were on this trip. Now, we were not prepared at all. So we needed a tent. We didn't have one. We were like, well, we could borrow one. So my friend's sister had a friend who had a tent. And this guy, is, he, he was a wild guy. He does a lot of marathons and he, you know, he does them in a tuxedo and other outfits. And he did one with 
most of his butt exposed, except for one of those have a nice day smiley faces, which he has tattooed on himself. So this is what we're dealing with. Interesting guy. And we get to his apartment and it's, it is insane. There are pizza boxes everywhere. There's like cats scurrying out of piles of debris and rubble. There's empty beer cans all over the place. And he's sitting in there playing PC games. An incredible, an incredible setup. So we get there and he's a really nice guy. And he's like, yeah, sure. I've got a tent for you. Turns out it's a single person tent, but he gives us the tent and we're like, whatever, we'll rough it for a couple nights. So we get to the park and for a little while, it's really beautiful. And by a little while, we're talking like hour and a half. And then the rain clouds roll in and it's, it's deluging. And so, you know, we call it an early night. <laughs> we try to squeeze until this single person tent really not made for us. And of course it's leaking. And of course there are like weird kind of like blood stain looking things on the inside of it that we're like just hoping were squished mosquitoes. And it's miserable. You know, we're trying to stay as dry as possible, like layering our socks, but they're getting soaked to the bone. And it's one of those things where you're just looking at your watch, like what you think is every couple of hours, but it turns out to be just every 20 minutes. And it is a long, cold, terrible night. So when we finally survive that and wake up the next morning, you better believe that that next meal was like a savior. And it wasn't even special. Remember we went to just like, it was almost like a local like sports bar kind of place that had breakfast. But it was nourishment and happiness and warmth after a cold day. And so when I was thinking like, what was one meal that I had after I was completely run down? That's the one that pops into my mind. So we're not just talking about food and comfort in this episode. My guest is Chef Alexander Harris, and he works for an organization called Emma's Torch. And Emma's Torch is a culinary education program specifically designed for refugees and immigrants to the United States. I can back that cause 100%. And so I was really excited to get to talk to Alexander about the work that he does and the work that the organization does. So go to the show notes for this episode. You'll find a link to their website and their social media and see how you can learn some more. You can go to Smith Street in Brooklyn, my old stomping ground, and the previous stomping ground of my last guest, uh, if you listen to the Mafia episode. But you can go there and you can, it's also a cafe in addition to being uh, a school essentially. And you can go get breakfast, lunch, coffee and stuff like that and support a really, really cool cause. All right. Enjoy this episode with Alexander Harris. Well, I appreciate you, first of all, for doing this and for allowing me to come to the space here. Uh, I was telling you before, but uh, I've worked in this neighborhood for about seven-ish years. So Smith Street was my stomping ground. And I don't, don't quite remember this storefront space being Emma's Torch. I think maybe, well, it started here in 2016. We started here in 2017. 
uh, in April of 2017. Um, this location was uh, Wilma Jean uh, before we came in here. Okay, that makes sense because I was here only until 2018 and then I went overseas a bit. Mm -hmm. uh, so that makes sense. But I'm sorry, I got that wrong. April 2018, yeah. 2018, oh, yeah. well, there you go, yeah. I left uh, just a couple months after that. So that definitely makes sense. This is a really cool spot, though. So thank you for, uh, for hosting me here, Alex. I appreciate uh, it. You're welcome. Thank you, for, uh, thank you for interviewing. Yeah, of course. And shout out to, I don't know if you know him, uh, but I had a photographer on my podcast named uh, Max Rosansky. He lives in Jersey. And he was doing a program, I think it was for Syrian refugees, so it's a cause that's close to his heart. And he was like, hey, you should check out Emma's Torch. So thank you, Max. Um, are you from New York originally? I am not from New York originally. Originally, I am from New Jersey. Oh, okay. Not far. Yeah. Whereabouts? Uh, I'm from Central, Central Jersey. Okay. Uh, I'm from South Plainfield. Ah, okay. So when you were... Uh, you know, a kid and thinking about the future as much as a kid can. Uh, did you want to be involved in food? No, it, food was always something that was kind of buried in the back of my mind. Huh. Uh, but I actually knew that I wanted to go into something that dealt a little bit more with medicine. Not oh, wow. really to be a doctor, but dealing with... Uh, actual uh, pharmaceuticals and vaccines and things like that. That's oh, wow. where my interests kind of lied. Uh, I didn't think I wanted to be a doctor, didn't think I wanted to be a pharmacist, but I kind of followed in a similar vein um, of other people in my family. So my mother was a nurse, my sister was a pharmacist. I went a little bit of a different route when you think of uh, the medical and healthcare industry. And uh, I studied chemical engineering in school and went into uh, vaccine development and production uh, once I graduated. Wow. Well, I guess there is some kind of connection between chemistry in regards to food and Indeed, in medicine, huh? Indeed, chemistry and, and food. So you were going to school then to be trained in the medical field then with vaccines? Uh, correct. I went to school for engineering. I went to the University of Delaware. Huh. Uh, and... Took five years there. Um, it really opened my eyes to a lot of different things. It gave me some really great opportunities. Um, it allowed me to get the, the basis for what I would draw on uh, when I came into the uh, food industry. So one of my first loves as well um, was French. Um, and when you think about studying French, you think about French cuisine. Uh -huh. um, and that was one of those things that I got to study a lot more when I was in school. Um, I did a short study abroad. Um, and one of the things that blew me away in terms of French culture was how different food was and beverage over, uh, overseas. What was that difference? Oh, well, uh, <laughs> one thing is certain taboos. For example, the drinking age, right? Yep. Drinking age is way younger in uh, overseas. And so what you start to get a little bit of an appreciation for is 
what beverage adds to the meal. Um, as well, uh, I stayed in Normandy. So there, uh, our meals were a little bit different. Um, maybe it was because of our parents were older. Um, my uh, study abroad parents. I yeah, think. yeah. Um, maybe it's because they were a little bit older and they were trying to show me a little bit more. Um, but every night's meal uh, had a certain format and it was way different from our dining format. Um, and so if I remember correctly, every night's meal started with a soup and then we would have a vegetable, then we would have protein. Um, and then after that, we would have a salad. After that, cheese. <laughs> after that, a dessert. And sometimes after that, it would be a pudding or some kind of compote. And then after that, coffee. Did you put on weight? Yes. <laughs> it was the first time in my life. So I'm, you know, in the middle of college. I'm 20 years old. It was the first time in my life to that point that I had ever noticeably gained weight. Wow. We all did in, in our study abroad. It was, it was crazy. When I think of, uh, you know, I'm not that well educated on it, I guess. But when I think of French food, I, th I think of a lot of butter going into most of the meals. Oh, yes. Yeah. So I was in Normandy and in that region, it's pretty famous for dairy oh, okay. and apples. So a huh. lot of cooking with things like uh, apples, cider, and uh, something called Calvados, which is like a, a, a fortified uh, spirit. Um, and uh, a lot of butter, a lot of famous cheeses like uh, Camembert and Polnavec, um, which are wash grind uh, cow's milk cheeses. Did you, uh, you know, try cooking at all where you were there? You just sort of, you know, got the no, bug? No, I did not try cooking <laughs> at all. Um, that wasn't really in the forefront of my mind yet. Okay. Still on the, you know, still in college. So working as hard as I could to actually get my bachelor's degree in chemical engineering, which is a pretty difficult field. Where do you think that uh, interest in French and French culture came from for you? Uh, well, the interest in French started um, through me being the younger brother of my little sister and all younger siblings uh, take after their older sibling. And my sister studied French when she decided to take a language mm -hmm. in high school. So I did, or in middle school. So I did the very same thing following right after her. Oh, okay. Um, but I really took to it. Um, and I think I would have taken to any language the same, because ultimately now I know about myself that I really love languages. Huh. Um, but back then it was just, wow, this French thing is really, really great. I love this language. I love the culture. And uh, yeah, like I said, I just, it was something that I really took to uh, when I was in middle school and high school and then brought that with me as I got older into, uh, into college and wound up minoring in that. Uh, ah, very cool. So then at what point did you transition to, to cooking? Oh, yeah. So the other half of that question. Oh. So, uh, <laughs> when I think back as an adult, um, I always saw food as something that was special mm. because of how food was presented 
and how people reacted to food when we had family gatherings. There was an, an emotional response to certain family members making, you know, their dish and everybody being excited to see that. And just, you know, as a, as a, as a child, you can't really put together, you know, what you're experiencing because you just don't have the depth of experience yeah. as, as an adult has. But looking back on it, I see that, wow, food, what made the impression on me was the way food made people feel. And I wanted to kind of, I liked food, and I wanted to get my shot at reproducing that experience. Ah, oh, that's beautiful. When you think back to early memories in your life, uh, who was doing the cooking, and, and what were the things that you were, the, the dishes you remember most? So day to day, my mom did the cooking. But uh, on the weekends, uh, my dad, you know, took his shot and, and cooked uh, meals. Um, my dad liked cooking as well. And so my early memories of my mom's cooking, I always liked to, I always took to breakfast. And so my mom taught me a little bit how to make breakfast when I was younger. And then I would start making, you know, breakfast myself. Um, I really liked pancakes. Um, I really liked eggs. So she kind of gave me my first pointers on how to cook those things. Um, my dad was different. So my dad um, was kind of that uh, educational cooking side, right? Oh, he wow. had the, uh, I don't know if you remember the, uh, the Time Life books series yeah, yeah, yeah. of cookbooks. Uh -huh. We had about half of that series wow. of cookbooks. And so that's m some of my early memories are my dad cooking out of those books. And some of my oh. favorite things to eat are some of the recipes that my dad either riffed on or took from those series of books. Um, I always look forward to my dad's pickles in the summertime, uh, oh, cucumber cool. pickles. Um, and there's a soup, a Portuguese style uh, soup that he makes as well with chorizo and kale and potatoes and beans. And oh, man. that's also another one that I, if I think back, like having that growing up uh, was, was a good one. Um, as well as holidays. Holiday meals were always, were always a big one. Uh, waking up really early and, you know, to the smell of turkey, you know, cooking and, and, and Thanksgiving and things like that. And, you know, ham on other holidays. Is Have you ever tried to recreate that soup now that you're a chef? No. Um, some things you have, in it, regardless of being a chef, some things you have an appreciation for, even though you can do it in a different capacity. Uh. For example, I've made a lot of mac and cheese at a lot of different places um, in my career, but mom's mac and cheese is always gonna Ah, uh, yeah, all, yeah. Right? Because of that emotional yeah. response that yeah, you were talking exactly. about. Yeah, exactly. Mom's lasagna, that's like my, uh, you know, on that list of, you know, your, your, your last meal. Mom's yeah. lasagna is gonna be on there. Oh, of course. Yeah. So did you then, I mean, when did you, I guess, decide, did you go get formal training or like go to, to school so for this? The decision to make formal training came about uh, in a couple of different ways. Uh, I have a very good friend that I grew up with um, who changed careers um, like me from what he was studying 
into the culinary industry around the same time, just a little bit before I did. And so when he was thinking about doing it, and then when he actually did it, we would talk a little bit and joke, yeah, you know, this is something we can do together, blah, blah, blah. And I thought about it and I was like, okay, you know, uh, personally I'm thinking that maybe it's a, a little bit off for me, but you know, I liked hearing about it and you know, it got the juices flowing for this actually happening someday and doing some more research for myself. Um, I was starting to get a little down on the position that I was holding um, in my old field. And so I actually started to really look at what would it be like if I stayed in this field, just jumping in the same position in another company, or if I changed careers. I kind of felt like I was young enough to just jump into the next thing. And uh, I researched a little bit and I read two books. And I feel like a lot of people around my age have a similar story in that uh, one of the books that I read was Kitchen Confidential. Yeah. Uh, Anthony oh, Bourdain. Please. Um, like, that's my guy. <laughs> and, you know, some people it shocked. Yeah. Some people ran screaming. And I definitely ran towards, you know, the things that were in this book. It really spoke to me in an exciting way. Um, and the other book that I read was uh, Soul of a Chef. Uh, by Michael Roman, mm-hmm. um, and that and was a little bit different. Right? Friends that too, wasn't right? inside the industry. That was CIA. What's it yeah. like to be in school? Um, I read those two books in about a day and a half. <laughs> wow! Um, and I applied to culinary school. I think the next day, or maybe day after that. Wow! And then I'm assuming for a while we're working in various yeah, kitchens so, and different restaurants. Um, I applied for culinary school, got in, and uh, still had to work my other job because had to have some kind of way to pay for it. Of course. Um, and so for a period of two years, I worked my uh, worked my current job. I started cooking in restaurants when I could. Um, and I was going to school all at the same time. Um, my old job was a production job, so I was working the midnight to 8 a.m. shift, Whoa. which meant pretty much no sleep. Yeah. <laughs> was going to school during the day and into the night and then working in kitchens in the nighttime and then just going right to work. Uh, so, yeah, it was uh, looking back now, only because I've lived through that experience would I know how to do something like that again. Um, but it was pretty, it was pretty intense. Probably slept about two to three hours a day. That is a nightmare. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> um, were you part of the initial planning for MS Torch or was it here and, and, and they hired you? Um, so uh, I came to Emma's Torch in a, in a fairly interesting way, in one of those ways that, uh, that often happens, even in a gigantic city like New York. Degrees of separation between people and restaurants are always, you know, under six, right? It's always like two or three. And so uh, prior to coming to Emma's Torch, I was in Union Square Hospitality Group. I was the chef de cuisine at uh, Blue Smoke. Oh, okay. Um, so I worked in that company for about six and a half, probably over six and a half years. Um, and 
I was coming to the end of my time. I saw the light at the end of the tunnel and um, I was looking to, uh, to take a break. Um, it was a grind, um, but I credit, you know, my years there for really helping develop who I am as a chef my managerial style and my teaching style. Um, it was critical to, to me getting to this point. Um, and so uh, I left Blue Smoke and was intent on taking a break for a few months. And one of my good friends and uh, former uh, assistant general manager at Blue Smoke, um, who was no longer there as well, um, had contacted me as soon as I left and said, hey, I met this person who's starting this nonprofit. They're looking for some help in the kitchen. Do you want to come on by? You know, this is in the month of June after I just left. And I was like, uh, I'm really trying to take a break right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and she said, no, 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 you're really going to love it. And she needs help um, in the kitchen. So please come on by and, you know, see what it's like. Um, this is the summer of 2017 when the pop-up was happening in Red Hook, pretty much right down the road from where we're sitting right now. Um, and so I agreed to, to do that. Uh, and I came in, I met Kerry. Um, I met the, uh, at that time, the culinary director who was helping uh, get things underway um, for the pop-up. And immediately, it was a kitchen, you know, so I felt at home. Um, met Carrie. She told me a little bit more about what they were doing and the teaching element and things like that. And uh, because I felt at home inside of the kitchen, I loved what was going on and, and personally just like to volunteer as well. Um, I just jumped right into it. And immediately I, you know, I talked to Mandy really quick, grabbed a few pans, started making adjustments with the cooks and, uh, you know, giving them tidbits of information and things like that. Um, and kind of the rest is history in terms of what I felt for mm. Emma's torch and what I could add. Um, Kerry shortly thereafter asked me if I was interested in a position and I turned her down um, because I was really intent on not working for a little bit. And I continued, I volunteered a few more times um, and took some time off. Carrie after that hired a culinary director. Um, but as things happen, you know, fortunately for me, that person did not totally work out by the end of the uh, pop-up. And so in December, Carrie and I came together uh, again and talked a little bit more about, uh, you know, possible opportunity. Um, I interviewed formally, uh, did a tasting and uh, a teaching demo, and the rest is the rest history. Is history. I, uh, you know, I said yes in December 2017 and been here ever since. So Emma's Torch, the name, is an homage to Emma Lazarus. Correct. And who wrote the the new Colossus, Correct. right? If people would know the Gimme You're Tired, You're Poor. Yeah. And it's the poem that's actually right behind you. Oh yeah. Okay. Very cool. Um, and the torch being the torch in the Statue of Liberty, which right. people know to be a symbol of welcoming to 
to New York Harbor for immigrants coming into New York and that being the portal to coming into America. So the, the organization itself hires and trains refugees to be chefs. Is that true? Exactly. That's, so what we want to do is educate um, through educate our students for adjusting to this culture and this workforce, specifically the workforce in New York, but the workforce in our country, um, and help them in as many ways as possible. And so our education doesn't particularly stop with culinary skills. We have the opportunity to teach everything by way of this environment that we have. And it's this restaurant and all of the things that we can do inside of this restaurant. Yeah, that's amazing. So then I would imagine that while many people then end up in food who, I guess, graduate through the program, not everybody does. Uh, not everybody ends up in food. Is that the question? Yeah. Uh, that is correct. Um, sometimes our students, for whatever reason, uh, don't take a job or don't take a job in food. Um, but the experience is still important and critical to their process mm. of adjusting or their educational process. Because we're still teaching things like life skills. Yeah. We're still teaching things like financial literacy. We're still teaching things like English language literacy. And so it's all a part of the process to help our students when they are ready to take that next step in their career and in their life. That's amazing. In regards to actual cooking skill, it, do most people come with a baseline of zero or do people come with like a range of skills that they already have? They're just like our students' uh, range in terms of their demographic. Their skill range uh, with cooking is also all over the map. Ah. You know, we've had uh, some students come that have never cooked before. We've had students that are home cooks. We've had students that are already social media personalities. Oh, wow. We've had students that have been chef for 10 to 12 years. Ah, oh, that's so cool. So <laughs> I was making a connection. One of, uh, I guess, sort of the pandemic binges that my girlfriend and I do is we watch Chopped. Um, and we like to, <laughs> when, the, when they first introduce all the chefs, we like to, we bet each other on who's going to win just based off of like the 30 second clip that they show of them. Um, and actually after reaching out to you, I saw that someone from Memphis Torch was on. On Chopped. On Chopped. Oh yeah. Uh, there was an episode. I, I'll have to look it up. There was an episode where whomever won would be able to donate to the cause of their choice. And so maybe the person wasn't, didn't actually work for Emma's Torch, but that was their organization of choice that they were going to donate, donate to. to Chopped. Am I forgetting something that I should have <laughs> I mean, Sorry. I might have it twisted up, but uh, when we're done here, I'll look it up. Yeah. But the connection I was going to make was there's a woman actually who's from New York. And, well, she's from Venezuela, but she's a chef in New York. And she won, and then she won like a champion's round type of a thing, but... 
She was on the other day and she was cooking with something and they were like, oh, that's not going to work. That's not going to work at all. And she's going, no, this is like a, a yucca-based product. I think it was tapioca. And she's like, I know, I know this well. They just don't know. And she ended up teaching the judges, which like I, I loved. So I was wondering if anyone ever comes in and like you learn something from them about cooking. Uh, all the time. Wow. Um, you know, when we teach here at Emma's Torch, uh, it's very much a part of the philosophy that what we're engaging in right now is a conversation. And conversations go two ways. I'm not just standing in front of you, barking things at you. I want you to respond because this response is only going to encourage more responses from the other students, as well as open up many different conversations that I may not have planned to talk about, but it's gonna open up our minds and our eyes and help the educational process for all of us. Um, And so uh, the first way that we start to talk to each other is when I find out where everyone is from. And so immediately I'll do some research on a little bit of what that culture is like and what the food is like. And we'll talk a little bit about that as well. Um, And then just through our time together, we'll have more and more conversation, more and more of an opportunity to cook together. And then, uh, you know, we learn a lot of different things about, you know, our cooking styles and ingredients and things like that. It's interesting in regards to where people are from because in restaurants all across America, there are people from Central America, South America, uh, Mexico, because of proximity. Um, those are countries that are close to the United States, and there are a lot of immigrants that work in restaurants and in kitchens, like uh, regardless of the cuisine. Like you could be in a kitchen selling Vietnamese food, and you may see somebody of Central American descent. When I was looking at the program, and I saw some people quoted. Uh, there was a, a beautiful quote about someone who came through your program that was hired at Buttermilk Channel, which I used to eat at all the time. It's mm-hmm. amazing. Um, Probably Hawa. Yeah, I, I saw people were, you know, coming from, from like Mali and Ghana and mm-hmm. all over the world. So you're really getting an, an incredibly diverse group of people here. Uh, yes. Uh, our students come from literally all over the world. And it's really interesting to, one thing that's been interesting to see is during periods of time where uh, our students are actually coming from, um, a lot of the influence of what I'm trying to put on the menu and our food currently is based on where these, a large percentage of these last few cohorts have come from. Um, and so uh, I'm always trying to look for new East and West African influences to put on our menu based on this high percentage of our students that have been coming from these areas. That's amazing. I mean, I, I, I wonder if people truly recognize like how we all benefit from those people then going into the workforce in general, but specifically in food. Like I always feel so fortunate that in most neighborhoods in, I live here in Brooklyn, I can walk down the block and it's like walking through the world in terms of the actual choices of food I have because there are people from those countries 
who are making the food of that country. It's in, it's in a it's it's an incredible city to live in if if you're a, a food fan. And so we <laughs> used to have uh, when the Brooklyn Public Library was open to the public, uh, we operate the cafe um, oh. inside of the Brooklyn Public Library, the central location uh, over at uh, Grand Army Plaza. Yeah. Um, and one thing I like to do as part of our uh, introductory first few weeks is take a walk from the library to the restaurant, which is really pretty much right down uh, Union Street. Yeah. Um, it's about a mile walk. And what we would talk about is all of the different types of restaurants, all of the different ethnicities that we would see. Um, and you would really run the gamut of what you could possibly do in the city in this one mile walk. And then to open minds, we would talk about, okay, now look at that and then think about what your dream restaurant is, right? What your identity in food is and how you could insert yourself into this, you know, large, diverse, you know, area um, that you're living in, whether it be in Brooklyn or Queens or the Bronx or Manhattan. That's beautiful. How are, you know, students or like potential candidates, how are they identified for uh, being involved in the program? Um, so right now we've been here in this location for a few years and we are very fortunate in that a lot of word of mouth um, is how we have been getting new students uh, to come into the program. We've had many students who are friends of uh, graduates or family of graduates, may have uh, worked with them, or they're in English classes together, um, or other programs uh, for different nonprofits. Okay. Um, we also are have a partner social organizations as well who um, who suggest coming to this program. Um, so there's a, a few different ways that you know we see uh, new students applying for the MS Torch program. Wow. Okay, I was curious about um, how this program gets funded and how maybe people can assist in that funding or participate? So we're funded by uh, a few different, in a few different ways. Um, we're, you know, we apply for um, grants. Um, we have partnerships with uh, a lot of different organizations that help us. Um, we have restaurant and um, and industry partnerships as well um, that help us with in-kind donation, um, meaning kind of uh, helping us with things that are inside of the restaurant and consumable things as well, and uh, things for our students. Ah, uh, okay. This space here on Smith Street, this operates as essentially like a school, a training facility, but also a cafe restaurant where people can... Correct. This, this location that we're in is pretty much our everything. And huh. so uh, where we're sitting right now is both the classroom and the production space. Um, 
behind where we're sitting in the service kitchen of the restaurant. That is where we cook for the cafe. Um, and the front of what used to be our dining room is where we take our orders for our guests. That's amazing. It has, I mean, everyone's been impacted by COVID, but has that been a big hindrance to the program or no? Um, it's been interesting. Um, and so we've had a really great opportunity um, during COVID to rethink a little bit of yeah. how we could do our program. Um, we've had a lot of help from our uh, industry partners to kind of think about how the industry on the whole is changing a little bit and what does the industry need in, term of, in terms of workforce. And so we similarly made that change when we thought about uh, education and how we want to develop the cooks that we graduate. Ah, it's interesting because more and more I'm starting to see people who, some of whom don't even necessarily work in restaurants, but they're doing things like you mentioned, like a pop-up or like a delivery service straight from their kitchen. It's strange to see if this is like a permanent evolution that's happening or if it's just people, you know, managing during the pandemic. It's, it's so interesting. Seemingly, right? So um, there are a few different, and you've, you've seen it in waves as time has gone from the initial closure back uh, in March to now. And so the first kind of wave of things was, okay, we have no restaurant. Now we're kind of pushing to social and people have been doing a lot of different things on, you know, getting kickstarting that, that business outside of a restaurant through social media. And that kind of led to, uh, the meal kit and meal box. Yeah. Um, and then moving forward to, uh, retail projects and then uh, doing, uh, kind of taking that social media and moving forward into online education, like through classes on, or classes and presentations on Instagram Live or Zoom. And then finally, everybody coming together in a really impactful way and forming partnerships between, partnerships between restaurants, partnerships between chefs, partnerships between nonprofits and for-profit restaurants. Yeah, so I was curious about how that works because like I was, I mentioned Buttermilk Channel. I saw that there are a number of restaurants, um, very local, but also like in the wider locality of the city that are taking people who come through the program. So, you know, do you uh, recommend certain people to them? Do they come watch people cook? Do they do like a cooking demo? I'm sorry, you're talking about the hiring of our graduates? Exactly, yeah. Oh, well, uh, so it starts with um, us talking with our employment partners. So we do have still some really strong partnerships with uh, certain restaurants here in Brooklyn and in the city. Um, and we speak with them about what their needs are, especially in this time uh, post-COVID. Um, what are their specific needs and if we can help with that. Um, outside of 
our employment partners, then we also help our students um, applying for and uh, obtaining jobs with restaurants who we that we don't have a personal connection mm. with just by initial outreach and presentation of what our program is and then is our student going to be someone that you think may meet your need and then we make that introduction between the two of them and then they take off from that oh that's great and and sometimes outside of new york as well uh, we do have some students That's outside cool. of New York as well. Um, for a while, we had quite a number of students in each cohort that were living in Jersey. Um, and so there are a few of our uh, graduates that are now in Jersey with uh, culinary jobs. Cool. Well, listen, I, I think it's an amazing organization. Um, I respect the work. I think this is uh, really, really cool. And I want to be able to like send people to to learn some more. So uh, whether it's about you or it's about MS Torch, where can people check out socials, check out websites and stuff like that? Awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, definitely can uh, look at our website. is emmastorch.org.org. Um, there's a lot of great information there. Um, our Instagram is Emma's Torch Food, um, And you can check out a lot of the things that we're up to on a daily basis or anything that's new that we're presenting, uh, both in with respect to food or an event that we might be having at the restaurant uh, in response to um, any new items that we're doing, any new initiatives, or in response to our cohort's graduations. Awesome. Yeah, I need to come back earlier in the day because I was checking out that breakfast menu and that looks awesome. So. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Alex. I really appreciate it. And that is a wrap on episode 195 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thank you to Alexander and thank you to MS Torch for setting up this conversation. Thank you to all of you Voyagers, as always, for tuning in. The holidays are coming up and I would implore you to support local businesses, support artists, and support people in your community. I understand that the easy way right now, especially with not seeing people, is just Amazon and a bunch of stuff to them. But as best as possible, please support the things that you want to be around when this pandemic is over. I've got a cool zine project coming out that I'll be able to announce at the middle of next week, which would be, what, Wednesday, December 16th. So look for that on social media. It's got a, a, a gorgeous cover that my friend designed. So I can send anyone a PDF copy. Uh, they are free zines, even the hard copies. But if you are somewhere in the world and you want one that's numbered and initialed and you want the physical copy to collect that art on the cover, I can mail you one just for the, the cost of mailing it. So email me at thevoyagesoftimvetter at gmail.com. Uh, but the purpose of bringing that up is the zine is about businesses in my immediate neighborhood here in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. There's a lot of great people that have been on this podcast. There are authors and chefs, cookbook writers. Max, who was mentioned in this episode when I was talking to Alex, he has a book of his artist portraits coming out. I mean, there's all sorts of people. I'll be having a conversation actually later today with somebody who does a Filipino pop-up. So as best as you can uh, spread your money around the community you live in, if you're spending money this holiday season, 
please do so. I will be doing the same. All right, folks, that's my rant. Love you all. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, please take care of each other. Bye-bye.